purification system on the new world is a three-step process. First, a filter which removes debris. Second, a series of multi-filtration beds to remove inorganic impurities. Finally, we interrupt this learning pod for a live broadcast from the new Earth government. Colonists, this is just a very short broadcast to assure you that the mistakes of the various governing bodies on the old world will not be replicated on humanity's new home planet. Humankind ravaged the old world, and like me, I'm sure you watched in horror as the seas rose and more and more of our once beautiful home became uninhabitable. I never saw it in person, of course, but I hear it was really bad for some people. We are the lucky ones, we few colonists who escaped the gradual destruction of planet Earth. Accusations have been made that only the very wealthy could afford to leave the dying planet, but that is very unfair. There were several scholarship places, and the recipients are very lucky to be here. Make sure to remind them of that. I'd like to take this moment to extend a big thank you to New Earth Oil, who built the Exodus ships and have helped fund a lot of the New World's habitation pods. A big cheer for New Earth Oil! Now, speaking of New Earth Oil, this new world requires fuel. It requires energy. We need power. With power comes civilization. With power comes prosperity. I want you all to understand that your new government is highly committed to renewable energy. But, and this is really the point of my broadcast to you this afternoon, we have detected an area underneath the northern settlement which has potential for hydraulic fracturing. This process used to be known as fracking, but we're not encouraging that term. We believe that with this initial push to release shale gas, we can get our society up and running, and then we can turn our thoughts to green energy. The people at New Earth Oil are good people. I know lots of them personally. I've been to summer parties on their family's estates. My own brother is very high up at the company, so I should know how trustworthy they are. I'm a pretty good judge of character. God bless this new world, and here's to a healthy and prosperous new beginning. End transmission. Is this voice activated? End transmission. We'll press the button then. We really need an anthem to play. Someone write a New Earth anthem. Give me a flag to stand in front of. Last month, I was asked to give a talk for the Priestley Centre at Leeds University. The lovely people there had heard this podcast and wanted me to talk about comedy and climate change. Specifically, can you joke about such a serious subject and can comedy be used to reach a wider audience? I really enjoyed doing the talk. It was packed and the audience was wonderful. While I was there, I recorded some more interviews for the next season of this show and I also recorded the talk itself. So I might release that if you're interested. Let me know at NoPlanetBPod on Twitter. The Priestley Centre is an international hub for climate change research. It's named after Yorkshire-based scientist Joseph Priestley, who is credited with the discovery of oxygen and conducted early experiments on the carbon cycle. His work is used in models of how oceans are acting as sinks for carbon dioxide, a major contributor to climate change, so naming the centre after him seemed appropriate. The day I was there was just three days after their beautiful new building had been officially opened. It's all glassy and has a large open space in the middle to encourage researchers from different disciplines to talk and collaborate. I posted some photos on the No Planet B Twitter feed, so head over there to have a look. 
At Leeds, I looked out across this audience of academics and I started my talk by stressing that everything I was about to say was based on my own experience of writing comedy and had not been peer-reviewed in any highly regarded journals or any lowly regarded journals for that matter. But our guest in this episode is quite the opposite. He's from an organisation which looks at the data and tries to convert that into environmental policy. Chaitanya Kumar is a senior policy advisor for the Green Alliance, a charity and also an independent think tank focused on influencing UK government environmental policy. I really like this quote from founder Morris Ash at the charity's launch in 1979. We're a bunch of optimists. We're not the doomsters. We believe in the possibilities of the future. In the 1980s, their work elicited the first ever environmental policy statements from all the main UK political parties. They've also been active in the Brexit debate, launching a Brexit risk tracker, one of the conclusions of which was that the UK chemical industry is at a high level of risk because of Brexit. I talked to Chitania at the charity's London offices, and to start us off, I asked him to tell me a little about the Green Alliance's work. So Green Alliance is a charity that was established in 1979. So in fact, this year we'll be celebrating our 40th anniversary. Uh, We've got a bunch of events lined up for that. Um, But we are a charity that primarily focuses on environmental policy in the UK. Over the last decade or two, we have focused a bit more on energy and climate policy, the stuff that I work on primarily in in, in the organisation. And another theme, uh, if, if I can call it that, is on resources, uh, as in how does Britain use materials, resources more efficiently. You, you, you've, many of us have seen David Attenborough's show on plastics, which you know moved a lot of people. Plastic is one of those resources that we use and throw indiscriminately. How do we ensure that those resources are better used, reused, recycled, things of that nature? So a couple of my colleagues look at that uh, question from a policy point of view. Um, and we've got a politics team. Uh, primarily, policy is at the end of the day politics. So, depending on who is in the government, uh, the policies and, and and the philosophy behind it will determine the policies uh, that they'll come up with. So, we've got a team uh, that looks at the changing politics, especially in times like this, when Brexit uh, is 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 still a dragging, ongoing process. Uh, keeping on top of that, trying to respond to that. Uh, and and making sure that politics is conducive, is favourable to rapid change in tackling climate change, basically. Uh, so that's that's some of my colleagues look at that problem. So it's it's quite spread out. But my if 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 I'm talking about myself, it's largely to do with energy and climate policy. We've done some good work in this country, but we've got a long way to go in terms of reducing our greenhouse gases, as we say, or carbon emissions that cause climate change. Uh, we've done well in some sectors. We haven't done anything uh, at all in other sectors. So my role is to study that and to basically provide recommendations to the government uh, on how they can do better policy to reduce our carbon emissions faster. So one thing we haven't done, I'd say nothing would be a bit extreme uh, and if, if uh, a bit unkind to the government, I'd say, but very little on buildings by which I mean we've got some of the leakiest buildings, draftiest buildings in Europe, which has given us the title of the coal man of Europe, uh, <laughs> which uh, which is because, yeah, most of our houses are very old Victorian homes. They don't necessarily have like double glazing or, or thermal proofing, things like that, good insulation, which means that there's more energy that is going into it 
through radiators and all of that than is probably necessary in a home that is newly built, more efficient, things like that. Um, and if you want to genuinely tackle climate change in the next 20 years or so from a UK context, then buildings are right up there in terms of your priority. Uh, you have to, f we've got 27 million houses in this country um, and a majority of them are leaky and drafty. So fixing it is going to be a, a big challenge and we aren't up to it yet. Uh, the other sector is transport. Uh, you see a lot of press around air pollution and it is a genuine concern uh, across metropolitan areas uh, in, in the country of massive amounts of cars, both fleets and personal transport that is leading to you know, pollutants like nitrous oxide, particulate matters, things like that, that is causing uh, air pollution and impacts on uh, breathing and lung disorders and things like that. Um, luckily, we live in a country where people are concerned about that, uh, where people worry about what that means for their kids, for their elders, things like that. And uh, that is really forcing the government to act on that. Uh, and one of the ways you do that is to basically improve public transport and remove cars from the street. Uh, a simple example is <clears throat> what the mayor of London introduced uh, early this month called the ultra-low emission zone, where he's cordoned off an area in central London where if you take your car, which is of a certain generation and which pollutes beyond a certain limit, uh, which can be easily identified, then you'll pay a charge for that, for having to take your car through that zone. And it's, I think, about £12.50, but I should, I should check that, um, which is a good chunk of money on a daily basis if you haven't to go through central London. And what that doing is encouraging drivers and company car owners to try and install cleaner vehicles and give their drivers cleaner vehicles and purchase electric vehicles, things like that. So that, we strongly believe, is going to have a good positive impact on reducing air pollution and reducing carbon emissions in our cities. But we haven't done much beyond that. It's only London that's trying out something. Right. Birmingham hasn't got any, Leeds hasn't got any, you know, other Manchester hasn't gotten any yet. The plan's in progress, but we haven't seen anything implemented yet. So transport and buildings are two areas where we're falling behind and we've got a lot to catch up on, basically. The way policy happens is sometimes top-down and sometimes bottom-up as well. By When I say top-down, I mean the government that is elected into office comes on the back of a manifesto. The presumption is that that government or that party has been elected on the basis of the manifesto, which is a set of policies that they said they'll implement. So you know before you've uh, elected someone that for the next five years you would expect at the least that they would implement a, you know, a set of policies that they've come up with. That's a very top-down thing. They come up with a manifesto, a set of policies and say, this is good for Britain go out uh, on the campaign trail and sell that to the constituents, to the general public. Public's like, yeah, that sounds great. They like come into power and they start implementing. That's a very top-down stuff. A more bottom-up approach is what we're seeing, you know, in the last few weeks with Extinction Rebellion, for example. Some might say that's an extreme example, but let's just work with that anyways. That is a group of citizens, active citizens, taking... Uh, uh, a route of civil disobedience, a route of um, 
protests to basically say there is an area uh, of genuine public concern where government action has been grossly inadequate. Uh, and they believe government has to do a lot more on that. And what they've managed to do in the last month it genuinely open up the conversation much wider than it is. A lot of people complain about them, but at the same time acknowledge that, oh yeah, climate change is an actual problem. Um, a Sky poll that came out the other day basically said, about, I think about 60%, if I'm not wrong, said they disapprove of the tactics, but they approve of the aims of Extinction Rebellion. I think that says something about the fact that there is genuine concern uh, amongst the public and they want the government to act but uh, they don't necessarily approve the tactics which is fine so that's that's an example of a bottom-up way of how you put pressure as public on your elected representatives who will then go to Westminster go to their local councils and instruct their policymakers and officials civil servants to basically say come up with policy that can actually deliver this uh, on the on the base of our philosophy, like conservative philosophies, more market, free markets, uh, liberalism, things like that, Labour, at least the current Labour government, is more interested in, like, you know, um, socialism, essentially, uh, and uh, devolving more powers to workers and communities, things like that. It's your pick. That, that's a philosophical question to ask. Uh, but both parties, regardless of what political ideologies they come from, have to address climate change. Uh, and that bottom-up pressure has been very powerful. So the youth uh, strikes have been genuinely moving for a lot of us in the office as well. I come from a campaigning background, personally. I used to work with a campaigning group called 350.org, um, and that was a large part of my 20s spent on uh, as a campaigner. And now I've sort of come to that stage where putting banner making and, and marches, which I still do, there's nothing physically wrong with me, but I've just taken a different turn in terms of how I think change can happen. Um, but that does not mean going on the streets and, and uh, young people taking action is, isn't powerful. It's genuinely powerful. And I think for a lot of us, one thing it's made very obvious is the intergenerational inequity of that climate change um, uh, brings about. And the fact that today young people are less well off than their parents because of the economy is, is, is poor. And the fact that it can only get worse because of climate change is a scary thought uh, for young people. And and they live in an information age where they're soaking in a lot of information. They're looking at stories of like, the ice caps are melting, and like there's floods, and there's droughts, and there's heat waves, and uh, crop degradation, and so many other impacts that, that you read on a daily basis. Uh, it is going to have a mental toll on, on, on individuals, young people especially. And for them to sort of collectively organize and come out and basically say, this is not done, you know, this is our future at stake, uh, I think is, is a powerful statement of intent. Uh, and hopefully this, this is going to be an ongoing thing. It's not, good, it's not a flash in the pan. And they'll continue these, these, these marches, these protests, this, this uh, way of opening the eyes of, of the general public, of their parents, of their elders, of MPs, uh, and, and hopefully we'll come to our senses and actually do something more drastic than we've been doing uh, so far. 
Last month, actor Mark Rylance resigned from the Royal Shakespeare Company, citing its BP sponsorship deal as the reason he couldn't continue as an associate artist. Every journalist in the UK hurried to get their headline of BP or not BP out first. In his statement in the Guardian newspaper, Rylance said, I do not wish to be associated with BP any more than I would with an arms dealer, a tobacco salesman or anyone who willfully destroys the lives of others alive and unborn. Nor, I believe, would William Shakespeare. BP has had sponsorship deals with the Tate, the National Portrait Gallery, the British Museum and many others. Search Liberate Tate for an art collective which aims to free art from oil. They've developed loads of creative ways of protesting, including taking a huge wind turbine blade into the turbine gallery at the Tate Modern and leaving it there as a gift. But back to Mark Rylance at the RSC. In his article for The Guardian, he quotes environmentalist Jonathan Porritt, who says, Together with other oil majors, BP has been accused of fully understanding the science of climate change as far back as the early 1980s and downplaying and obscuring that science ever since, always in the short-term interests of its shareholders. Regrettably, its current leadership is stuck in the same pattern, all the time using philanthropy to hide its past and present culpability. Rylance then comments, The early 1980s. This is 2019. Half the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere currently warming our planet have been emitted in the last 30 years. BP has made the third biggest contribution to climate change of any private company in history. It apparently knew three decades ago we were about to cook our planet and then lit the fire. Surely the RSC wants to be on the side of the world-changing kids, not the world-killing companies. All of this does make you wonder how long the RSE can continue being sponsored by a big oil and gas company as the tide of public opinion turns against fossil fuels. Okay, okay, can we have some quiet please? Thank you. This board meeting of the Royal Shakespeare Company is now in session. First order of business, the upcoming 2059 season. What are people's thoughts? Well, a lot of Stratford is underwater now, what with the banks of the Avon breaking. The water is encroaching on both the Royal Shakespeare Theatre and the Swan Theatre. So I was thinking a really fun, site-specific production of The Tempest. Oh, that's good. So the audience can actually feel the fear of drowning along with the characters. Exactly. Will Sebastian... Sebastian survive the storm. And will you? Very art imitating life. Twelfth Night starts with a storm as well. Could we have Twelfth Night at the Swan Theatre? Um, well, let me just check. Can we get word on where the water level will be by the end of the 2059 season, Joanna? The stalls will probably be underwater, but I'm just thinking about the circle. Those are in price band A, so I'm loath to lose them. Um, latest predictions say stalls underwater, circle still usable. Oh, great. Okay, well that's okay then. Oh, uh, sorry, um, it's just the stage will be underwater by then though, so I'm just a little a little bit concerned about the actors. Oh, just hire a bunch of people straight out of drama school. They'll do anything for the credit and they won't complain. Um, yeah, but what if they get equity involved? I'm, I'm just worried about union issues if we make actors perform underwater. Oh, equity's offices were washed away in the Great Thames breach of 2048. Do keep up. Now, the other place, Studio Theatre, what are we thinking for there? Well, there have been record-breaking wildfires across Warwickshire this year. The Chilterns and the Cotswolds are currently ablaze. And it's only a matter of time before Stratford is engulfed. So I was thinking burning, burning witches, Macbeth. Oh, that's great. Immersive. The audience will really be able to smell the burning flames.
flesh, very Artodian, very theatre of cruelty. We'll get an Olivier for that, probably. Oh, no Olivier's anymore, sadly. The awards kept melting. Oh, that's a shame. But that's a great season. The Tempest, Twelfth Night and Macbeth, all sponsored by our friends at BP, who I understand will also be providing crude oil for the damned spot that Lady Macbeth can't wash away, no matter how much she tries. And we can fill the rest with writing by up-and-coming playwrights. Oh, there aren't too many of those, I'm afraid. The young people all seem to be busy fighting ecological breakdown. Oh, sweet. We'll just do a bunch of Ibsens then. And that's water lapping under the door, so let's call an end to this meeting. Time to move up to the floor above, everyone. It is Sunday the 12th of May, just after midday. I am on Park Lane, walking down to Hyde Park Corner. I'm walking through an ultra-low emission zone, appropriately. I'm on my way to talk to some people at the Mothers Climate March. You can follow them on Twitter, at Mothers Rise Up. They describe themselves as a group of mums who are sick of feeling helpless about our children's futures in the face of catastrophic climate breakdown. We are organising. Join us. So let's go and talk to some mums and dads. I imagine there'll be some fathers there too. We are mothers, we are rising. It's our children, you're compromising. We are mothers, we are rising. It's our children, you're compromising. We are mothers, we are rising. It's our children, you are denying. We are mothers and our hearts are breaking. It's our children that you are forsaking. We are mothers, we are rising. It's our children, you're compromising. I'm going to try and talk to some mums. Mum, would you be able to tell me why you're here? It's for a climate change podcast. Oh, yes. Well, we're here because we absolutely... First of all, it's a great opportunity for my daughter to get involved in helping change the world and think that she can change the world. And because we want to be a bit of helping the world work in a better way. What a great opportunity. Yeah. Are you proud of your mum? Yes. Granny's here too. Can I talk to Granny? How, yeah. why, why are you here today? Granny's here. I'm, I'm here because I mind more than I can say about um, keeping the planet for my grandchildren and for my children and for their children. And the only way to do it is to say so. Coming to uh, just support the cause, it feels to me that if you're going to march for something, this is the this is the reason to do it. Most important issue facing this country and I think the world. So, got to get out and show support. Can you tell us what your sign says? Uh, it says, uh, "Climate change. Whoever denied it supplied it."
to my interview with Chitanya Kumar from the Green Alliance. A piece of literature that came out the other day from David Wallace Wells in the US uh, called The Uninhabitable Earth. I think one of the shocking facts from that book and the article preceding that book that he had written was we've put more carbon in the atmosphere in the last 30 years than ever in our history. And what's shocking about that is it was in the last 30 years that we knew climate science, that we knew that climate change is a thing and that we knew it is bad, that putting more carbon emissions. So it goes right to the heart of the problem to figure out how did we go about putting more carbon in the atmosphere than ever before during a period when we knew that doing that was bad, actively knew that doing that was bad. And I think it says a lot about our politics and, and how politics is, is failing uh, or sort of self-serving in a lot of ways. Uh, and it is true to a large degree that the political cycles that we've got, the election cycles that we've got of four years in the US or five years here or elsewhere, in democracies at least, um, have not given enough of an incentive for politicians and policymakers to put in their um, manifestos saying we'll do something commensurate to the scale of the challenge of climate change. Um, and, and, and having not done that, we've just kept kicking the can down the road, basically. And another problem one might say is Politicians, of course, would say that because they're not hearing the need for that mandate from the public. That's their constant response. Individually, they'll say, if you talk to them in a public, yes, of course, this is a grave problem. This is very important. We should do something about it. But my constituents aren't concerned. So if I am to be a representative of my constituents, and for them, it's more about the NHS, it's more about transport, it's more about bins, and, and recycling and things like that, that by default becomes my priority. I can't go to them and go, here's this humongous challenge of floods, droughts, wildfires and all of that around the world, and you can do something about it. It just feels like, you know, Atlas shrugged. Uh, and, and, and it's hard to imagine how... how that, that's the argument that the politicians put forth anyways. And I think it's sort of feeding this vicious cycle where... One blames it on the other, and the other says politicians do something, and the MP politicians are like, well, you're not asking me to do anything. So we've gone on for a while doing that without any 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 major outcomes. So that's one. The second large reason, I think, is we haven't genuinely told the truth about climate change in a manner that allows the public to go to their MPs and talk about doing something about it. Uh, the we call it the corporate capture of the media. If you look at Fox News or the Daily Mails of the world, uh, the way they talk about climate change has always been in a very skeptical language. Oh yeah, that fire, we're not too sure. Like it can be about climate change, it can't be about climate We're not too sure, we're not too sure. And I think we've done that so often and we've sown the seeds of doubt in the minds of, of, of a lay audience that a lay person is like, oh, I'm not too sure if this is because of climate change. But how can, a, how can any individual know necessarily? Uh, and that's what Greta Thunberg, for example, is saying. I am a 16-year-old. I do not know if this is for sure or not. But listen to climate scientists. Listen to those who've been spending their entire lives 
looking at this problem, looking at models, looking at uh, doing experiments in the North Pole, in the South Pole, in different parts of the world to figure out like what sort of impacts are we seeing. And decades of research has emphatically shown that the more carbon we put in the atmosphere is leading to climate change and leading to all these disastrous weather uh, events. Um, we finally, after 30 years, come around to that at a mainstream level, where MPs around, sorry, MPs in the country and politicians in major economies of the world have finally acknowledged that, yes, there's a problem, we'll do something about it. I think it sort of came together in 2015, and then the entire world signed what we know as the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, it came to that, but corporate capture, like I said, of the media, um, the general pressures... Uh, from vested interests, the fossil fuel interests, for example, fossil fuel companies, uh, is another challenge. Uh, the lobbying power that they have to lobby politicians, especially in the US, we see that a lot. Uh, if you look at um, where money comes for campaigns for a lot of senators and congressmen and all of that, uh, a lot of it is tied to fossil fuel companies. And when they come into office, they obviously do the bidding for those companies. And they are the last people who want to solve climate change because it's in their, it's not in their interests, uh, so to speak. So we have got ourselves into a mess, no doubt about it. Uh, there's a lot of factors that have contributed to that, even though we knew climate change was happening. Um, I'd like to think the tide is shifting. Uh, I'd like to think that we'll somehow manage to limit global temperature rise to under 2 degrees. Feels to me 1.5 is still out of the way. Um, Ideally, I shouldn't be saying that because there's still hope and scientists still think that it's still doable. But the reasons that have led us to here of, you know, emitting for the last 30 years, even when knowing that climate change is a problem, that symptoms that have led us to this, I don't think will shift overnight. I think they'll continue for, for a few more years. Uh, and in the process, we'll emit more. And I think that window of 1.5 will shut if it's not shut already. I think two degrees is something that, that we should genuinely try and limit uh, our temperature rise to below two degrees. Uh, but the final thing to say to that is, it is there is something to be said about the fact that even 1.5 is, is too much. Um, 1.5 might be something else in the global north. It is something completely different in a country like, in a, in a continent like Africa. 1.5 there could be like 2 and 2.5 uh, because just just how the climate systems work um, which effectively means that you're exacerbating the impacts of climate change on those very people who have contributed the least to the problem uh, and that sort of equity question we just haven't encountered that uh, countenance that well enough and it, it'll come to a, a moment where you know once, once these continents and these massive swaths of people face dramatic impacts uh, from climate change, uh, they will look to countries in, in, in the West, in the North, that have caused this problem to try and pay for that problem. Um, so, but that battle is, is, is being fought in some quarters, but I think it will blow up uh, in the next decade or so. To achieve that two degrees uh, Celsius sort of limit, we'll go well below that, we basically have to throw the kitchen sink at this problem. Um, technology will, will help to a large degree, but uh, there's some sort of systemic changes that needs to happen in terms of how we run our economies, 
how we run our, our workplaces, how we run... Um, uh, I mean, I, I can't get my head around the kind of changes that, that one has to imagine. Um, but I'd like to think Technofixes can fix the entire problem. I think they're a significant chunk of, of, of the solution uh, in terms of more wind energy or more solar energy and things like that. Uh, but I think they can only get us so far, like 60% or 70% of the problem. Um, I think there's there's a more collective awakening that needs to happen where people generally work within their local areas, within their local communities to figure out how they can look at this problem and, and act on this problem uh, from a bottom-up level. Yeah. So if someone that you're talking to does not believe in climate change or thinks climate science is, is humbug, is a lot of doubt, modeling doubts and all of that, I think one has to... I think one has to show to them somehow the overwhelming scientific evidence there is. I'm not talking evidence from scientific papers and journals. Uh, unlikely that they'll sit and read through that. What I'm talking about is speaking through a medium that they appreciate, for example. If there's someone who, I don't know, likes comedy, for instance, I would probably show them a show uh, uh, about climate change that John Oliver did, for instance, you know, on climate change. Uh, and if, if, if that is something that, that interests them, like that's their cup of tea, then uh, that's the language to communicate to them. But I would caution on also having to convince everybody. I don't think it is necessary because there will always be forces out there, always be your, you know, your express and daily mirrors and your daily mails and all of that, who will throw out stories out there which basically says, oh, this is not because of climate change, it's a hoax, we're going to lose a lot of money trying to tackle a hoax problem. Um, it's I don't think it's our job to try and convince everybody. I think there is genuine political consensus now across all parties that we have to tackle climate change. Uh, now it's a question of what do we do to do that? Uh, everyone on the streets with Extinction Rebellion and all of that is like, do something, do something, you know. Yes, we have to do something, but someone has to figure out what that something is. Um, and I think I think we're at that stage at least now that, that uh, people are coming together, racking their brains to figure out what is that something uh, that will dramatically reduce carbon emissions that we put out into the atmosphere. Many thanks to Chitanya Kumar of the Green Alliance for that chat. You can follow the Green Alliance on Twitter at Green Alliance UK and their website is green-alliance.org.uk. Since making this podcast, I've been asked about what books I'd recommend on the subject of climate change. So here is No Planet B's first climate book club. First recommendation has to be Extinction Rebellion's Handbook, This Is Not a Drill, published by Penguin. It's a collection of short essays from academics and experts, including environmental lawyer Fahana Yamin, a wildland firefighter in California, and Mohammed Nasheed, former president of the Maldives. It also has an introduction by Sam Knights, the very first guest we had here on No Planet B. I've also been reading Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, and I've been listening to The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace-Wells, read by the author. One question I ask a lot of my interviewees is why we humans are so good at ignoring the problem of climate change. This question is tackled head-on in George Marshall's book, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. 
Next on my reading list is Nathaniel Rich's book Losing Earth, The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change. If you want a more positive, proactive book, you could try 12 Small Acts to Save Our World, simple, everyday ways you can make a difference by the World Wildlife Fund. Or No More Plastic by Martin Dory with a foreword by Chris Packham. I've also been using an app called Earthrise, which tells you where your nearest climate protest is. This isn't a sponsored thing, it's just an app I've come across and have genuinely been using. Earthrise, check it out. Thank you so much to all of you for downloading No Planet B so far. I really enjoy making it. If you're enjoying listening to it, please do consider giving it a nice review on iTunes. That really does help me. As I said before, I'm a one-man band making this, so any nice words you can throw my way are hugely appreciated. You can also tweet the podcast at No Planet B Pod. <coughs> The new Earth National Anthem should sound, well, anthemic, of course, but also very grand and noble, but also humble at the same time. And, I don't know, maybe there could be some lyrics about me, something like, I mean, not this, but something like, Strong and valiant, our brave leader led us from the darkness of the crumbling old world into the light of the new age. Something like that. I'm just spitballing. And mention how modest I am. Well, I'll leave the orchestration to you, something with lots of pomp and circumstance. You can draw inspiration from my official portrait, if that helps. It depicts me riding on the back of a rocket, heroically pulling up the remains of the human race by their bootstraps as I stare enigmatically off into the distance. Well, I don't know what the tune should be. Something like... Dum 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 Oh, hang on. Something like... No, something like this. Like... Hold on. Hold on, how do you play this thing? Hold on. Wait. Well, no, hold on. Something like this. Something like... And then it sort of ends like... Imagine that, but like with a beat and lyrics about me. No Planet B was written and performed by me, Gemma Arrowsmith. Our theme was composed by Odin Hill Marson and our artwork is by Tom Crowley. Incidental music is by Kevin McLeod. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening.